Okay, welcome everybody to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site. It is our pleasure to be on a road trip here. It's actually Memorial Day 2011. We're up in beautiful Temple City, California. I'm here with my good partner, on-air partner, Smitty. I am Mike B, and we have none other than one of the best rock and roll music historians for the L.A. Top 40 era and beyond, none other than our friend Bill Earl. Smitty, tell us a little bit about Bill. Well, Bill is very, very knowledgeable on the history of L.A. Top 40 Radio. He's also very, very knowledgeable on the history of KRLA here in Los Angeles. And we're here at The Hat. Uh, we're in a little booth here. Uh, we're going to have a pastrami sandwich a little later, which is the official food of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, by the way. But right now we're going to talk with Bill, and it's our pleasure to welcome Bill. Bill, welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Thank you, Smitty. Appreciate you having us here. And uh, my wife also, Rosemary, is happy to be here, too. Yes, Rosemary's here with us, too, and she's going to listen to our conversation today. Bill, why don't you start off and um, tell us a little bit about your early years, how you got interested in radio and communication. Well, let me put it this way. I was sort of a late bloomer on radio because my uh, parents had me uh, in a military academy for almost three years. So I didn't listen to the radio until August 1961, when I got out of the military school. So what happened is in August 1961, my uncle, the one from San Diego, who is now deceased, but he was a, a prominent priest in San Diego for many years, he uh, gave me as a present a little six-transistor radio. And uh, I thought, wow, it's the coolest thing, you know? And the first thing I heard was KFWB. I didn't even know about KRLA at that time. I, all I heard was KFWB, and I liked it. But the interesting thing about KFWB is when I first heard it, I was hearing the strike jocks. I was here. I didn't know they had had a strike. So I was hearing guys like Hal Murray, Don French, Charlie Brown, Art Nelson, Jim Hawthorne, George Babcock, and I thought they were the regular guys. I didn't know that they that the other guys had walked out two weeks before. So it all started for me in August '61, and I would take this little transistor radio wherever I went. I just loved the little thing. I mean, it was a constant companion. Being an only child. And coming from a military school where I didn't have friends in the neighborhood because I, I, I didn't know anybody, you know, uh, that was my constant companion. I was uh, walking uh, with my little transistor radio up and down to the, uh, actually, Hugo Reed School, which was down the street from where I lived, and that was a place where all the kids would hang out. You know, I mean, the, they had, a, play, had a, a playground and lawn and grass and everything, and I would go there and just, you know, hang out, whatever. On the way home, I dropped my radio. I dropped the little six-transistor radio, <laughs> and uh, those were so sensitive. And uh, and I, I couldn't get KFWB anymore because, you know, I, I knocked the antenna out of sync. But I heard this other station that came in really loud, and it was KRLA. I, I heard KRLA and two Spanish channels. And I discovered later, because the transmitter of KRLA was right down the street here, right down on uh, in Lake Lake, Whittier Narrows area, South El Monte. I was living in Arcadia, not too far from here, and the Spanish channels were up there. And well, One was here in San Gabriel, KALI, and the other was KWKW in Pasadena. So the only stations I got were those three because the towers were so close. And that's why I discovered KRLA. As soon as I discovered KRLA, I kind of switched from KFWB to KRLA because... That same year, when I got out of the military school, my parents put me at St. Philip's School in Pasadena, which was blocks away from the KRLA studios. And all the kids there were huge fans of KRLA because they lived over there. The reason I was at St. Philip's is Holy Angels, which was my local parish church, the school, they wouldn't take me. They were full. So St. Philip's had the overflow. So here I was at St. Philip's. We'd have our little transistor radio. I had another one by that time. 
put it in my lunch pail. We'd listen to it, and the kids would say, oh, it's right down the street, you know. And my favorite DJs at that time were Roy Elwell, because I could hear him during recess. Dick Moreland, I heard him at lunchtime. When, Roy was 9 to noon. Dick Moreland was noon until 3. And what year was this? This is uh, the fall of 61. Fall of 61. Yeah, okay. and then Frosty Harris was 9 to midnight, and I would hear him at night. I'd fall asleep having, you know, Frost, listen to Frosty Harris uh, with the radio on my pillow. Because it was at St. Phillips, the kid says, well, someday after school, just walk down to the hotel where Carole was at. It was in a what was then called the Huntington Sheraton Hotel. Because Carole was right there in the neighborhood, they invited kids in. There was a huge lobby at that time with sofas, and then they had the booth, and you had a glass window, and you could actually sit in the lobby and watch the guy do his show through the glass. And KFWB, you couldn't do that. My mom t- took me to KFWB. They wouldn't let me pass the receptionist desk. I wanted to see what the booth looked like. They, they said no. So KRLA, because it was so accessible to kids, especially my neighborhood, it, it was right there. And so we, we hung around. And this is this is before the Beatle era. The Beatle era changed everything, by the way. And KRLA had the better contest, too. Did they, well, did they, they, they were called they really fun tests. They the called fun them fun tests. Did and they ever they were, write a golden key? Was there ever a golden yeah, key? Yeah, that was before. Before that was when they first started. I uh, remember people looking all over Southern California for the golden key. Golden key. What had happened was, uh, well, there wasn't at first. The, the problem oh. was, uh, from what I understand, it was a fraudulent contest, and they didn't have one, and because uh, they didn't know where they were to put it, they just wanted people to just uh, you know look for something that didn't exist. It finally was found over by Marineland on a hill over by the Wayfarers Chapel in Marineland. They, they finally put it there and, you know, in some way where everybody was able to find it. They tore up the transmitter, the Carolee transmitter in South Elmai. There were stories of, the, of people there in the, under the towers, uh, you know, looking for the, you know, which oh is very God. dangerous, looking for this key. And then at the Huntington Sheraton Hotel, the hotel didn't like people there coming there and, 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 you know, roaming around the whole hotel grounds looking for the key. So it was a very sensitive relation between the hotel and KRLA because originally it wasn't KRLA, it was a KPAS there, and then it became KXLA, and they weren't top 40. When KPAS was just a, you know, a, a mishmash of block programming, and KXLA was, was country. At the end, it was, it was MOR, and then it became country. So they weren't used to having kids, teenagers, hanging around. As they, and when they had the golden key, of course, that was a problem because the hotel said, uh, you know, we, we're not used to this. You know, These contests or fun tests were very popular then. Carole didn't have much money to give away. They'd only give away $11.10. That was the, <laughs> But, I mean, in those days, that was a lot of money. But they and, were the and, innovators, though. You had KFWB, the, what, the colorful K- gentleman? The uh, s- seven swinging gentleman. Here's the difference between... KRLA and KFWB. KFWB, they played top 40, but they also played middle-of-the-road stuff as well. They appealed to the parents as well as teens. KRLA went strictly for the, the kids. Teens. If parents listened, cool. But KFWB never wanted to get rid of that link with the... Uh, so, like at KFWB, uh, Elliot Field and Gene Weed would have the Sinatra Serenade for Suffering Secretaries. Yeah. KRLA would never yeah. do that, but, I mean, they, they'd play a Sinatra song at, like, 4 or 4. 30 every day on KFWB because they wanted to have that adult audience. Carolay was strictly for the kids. Carolay was a local suburban station, whereas KFWB was right there on Hollywood Boulevard. So the fact that Carolay was where kids could go visit it. There were always occasionally kids visiting Carolay, like 
in 61, 62, but everything changed when the Beatles uh, came about. Now talk about the Beatles, the Carol A as the first, the yes. only Beatles station yeah, in LA. Yeah, when the Beatle era came about, um, be Dick Moreland right? had heard of the, about the Beatles and said this is going to be a huge phenomenon. And, you know, Carol A was trying to do whatever it could. It had no identity. It was a top 40 station, but there was really nothing distinguishable about Carol A. But then when it got behind the Beatles, everything changed. Did they get Beatles exclusive? Oh, yeah. Dick Moreland uh, had Dave Hull be the, because uh, Dick Moreland was off the air by this. He was just doing weekends. He was like in productions or whatever. So they asked Dave Hull, would he be, you know, the Beatle DJ there, like the fifth Beatle of Carolee? And uh, Dave said, sure. And somehow Dave had a connection with somebody in England that would give Dave exclusives. And so Dave would play stuff, uh, you know, I, I, he would play stuff that nobody else had. Right. And, and also, Carolee was playing album tracks. So the, nobody ever had done that before. KFWB had a format. They didn't want to break their format. They figured, well, it's always worked for us. The Beatles, just another band. They didn't understand the whole cultural phenomenon of the whole thing. Did Carolee truly... Were they ever able to truly capitalize on being the Beatles station of oh, LA? Because yeah. they were low budget. The Beatles put Carolee on the map. And, of course, uh, two of the DJs there, Reb Foster, Rebel Foster and Bob Eubanks, produced the first Beatles concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Right. And then after Foster dropped off and went to KFWB, Eubanks did it alone, and then Eubanks produced the second one in 65, and then at Dodger Stadium oh, in 66. And a lot of these Carol DJs had their own clubs. There was the Hullabaloo. Dave licensed his name. Yeah. Dave was not involved with the, you know, he, he probably was never there. I can tell you a good story you'll get a big kick of. Bob Eubanks had the had a chain of clubs called the uh, the Cinnamon Cinder. Cinnamon Cinder, right. And my mother was Been a there. teacher at Alhambra High School. And on Main Street in Alhambra, they had a branch of the Cinnamon Cinder. Well, this was during the summer, and my mom wanted me to help her set up her classroom and all. And when I got tired, I walked over to the Cinnamon Cinder. Well, I was underage. I was only like 12 years old and 63, yeah. And I remember I saw the back door, and I just walked in the club. And, you know, they served alcohol there, I think. I believe they did. But anyways, whatever it was, I walked in, and I said, hey, anybody here? And, and then this guy comes behind me, this real tall guy, takes me by the arm and says, kid, you're out of here. And bodily kicked me out of the because I, I shouldn't have been I wasn't supposed to be in there and you know who that was Bob Banks himself. Is yeah. that right? Wow. So I, I hold the distinction uh, of being bodily uh, evicted from the Cinnamon Center. He took me by the arm and he, he just said, "Kid, yeah." He was, he was he was mad. I think he thought I was going to steal something. I don't know what. Well, our listeners are not going to let us get too far away. When the subject is Carol A. Without talking about our good friend Casey Kasem, Casey reinvented himself. Uh, when he came to Carroll Lake, he wanted to get in movies. When he was at KEWB in the Bay Area, Oakland area, he was doing voices and wild tracks. He, he didn't have the same act. So when Casey came here, they put him on middays, and he had to change his act and, and, and mellow out. And, he, and, and that's why he started doing the, uh, the bios, the teasers. And he didn't do any comedy, no comedy at all. And that's what reinvented Casey. We're going to take a break, Smitty, and when we get okay. back with Bill... Actually, we're, our break's going to be a little clip from Casey Kasem, a, an air check we have from May of 1965. We'll be right back with Bill Earl. The latest from the Beatles on KRLA and a worldwide exclusive, that one, the tune called Tell Me What You See from KRLA. Casey Kasem time, 11 minutes past 2 o'clock. To choose the perfect gift, just remember this rhyme when something happy happens. It's full of a watch time. K R L A. 
Okay, we're coming back with Bill Earl, our special guest. We're up here in Temple City, California on Memorial Day 2011. The subject has been KRLA. The side subject has been the, the colorful DJs that made KRLA so famous. There were many, many of them. Many uh, of them. Let's get back I, to I knew, Casey and move on. Well, Casey was highly popular. You know, KRLA had one lineup that really was the dream lineup, and they kept that lineup intact for a long time, and that's when KRLA uh, was at its peak. That was uh, Emperor Hudson in the morning, 6 until 9, Charlie O'Donnell, 9 to noon, Casey, noon to 3, Dave Hull, 3 to 6, Eubanks, Bob Eubanks, 6 until 9, Dick Biondi, 9 who came from Chicago, 9 to midnight, and then... uh, Bill Slater, midnight to six, and then Johnny Hayes on the weekends. That was the real solid major Carolina, and they kept that lineup in, in place uh, for uh, for quite a while. Did that go all the way till '67? No, it, it, it split up. The change was Emperor Hudson got fired, right. and he went to KBLA in Burbank. And, and there were uh, people demonstrating at the studio when Emperor not, Hudson left. No, the demonstration that. was a year later in 1967 okay. when Dave Hull uh, yeah. was fired from KRLA. Apparently what it was, they, they didn't want him to play advanced tracks from the Sgt. Pepper album, mm-hmm. which he had. Up to then, he always played advanced tracks. But I guess the Sgt. Pepper thing was very sensitive and... There was some agreement that no one would play it ahead of time, and, and Dave got mad, from what I understand, and was supposed to have gone to a party for Twiggy and represent KRLA and never showed up for the party, and, and they, they fired him. But then, when, when we found out, when the kids found out about it, uh, they all went to KRLA and had a protest on the steps. I actually took a day off from school and went over there, and I actually had a sign there. I was one of the protesters, but it was mostly girls. It was I very few that. boys, but I, I was one of the few boys there. It was mostly female. It was the females. I, I got my names wrong, but I remember it now. Okay. Actually, it made mainstream news. Did it really? It did. They never had a, a protest for a DJ before, yeah. but Dave was so popular because of the Beatle connection. Did the protest have any help, uh, Bill, any effect? Uh, yeah, they brought him back. A week later, a week later, they brought him back. Interesting. Yeah, but they changed their lineup temporarily. They put Reb Foster in Hull's three to six shift. Mm -hmm. They took uh, Bill Slater, who was who was working overnights, moved him to nine to noon, where Foster had been. Mm -hmm. Those guys were entrenched. They were, you know, we I thought those would be the. you know, the regular guys, but then when they brought Hull back, then everything went back the way it was. Foster went back to 9 to noon, Slater went back to the weekends. Well, Bill, you and I have talked about this before we got together today. Top 40 radio, the demise was sometime around 1967. What happened? Two things really happened. First of all, the Monterey Pop Festival really changed everything. And kids were now being aware of bands that were not top 40 acts. Jimi Hendrix, Big Brother and the Holding Company, the whole roster of people from from Monterey Pop. Jimi Hendrix, I don't think, ever had a a top 40 single, but people would buy his album. So kids now were discovering LPs. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, The Doors uh, came out in in, in, uh, the spring of 67, and the song Light My Fire, that was a seven-minute song. A lot of stations wouldn't play it. So kids were discovering music. The top 40 was ignoring, except for KBLA at night. They, KBLA. Dave Diamond, Humble Harve, and KBLA were playing these long album cuts from Love and Big Brother and the Rolling Stones. And uh, So what happened is kids discovered in ni- 1967 FM. They discovered the acts that would go to FM. And in a little place in Pasadena on Colorado Boulevard in the basement of the Pasadena Presbyterian Church, Tom Donahue, who was, had been a top 40 DJ in San Francisco, and B. Mitchell Reed, 
who was uh, trying to do some progressive music on KFWB, but not all the way. Both guys got together and turned that little KPPC-FM into a place where kids could hear album-oriented music presented in a laid-back FM style without the top 40 personalities. Mm -hmm. The whole approach was different, and that really is what took people away from Top 40. When kids started wanting to hear these acts, the Top 40 stations would not play. You mentioned BMR, who I, I learned a lot from with BMR over at Metro Media, came at the Mighty Met, and he looked back and said, the term underground radio started in the basement of that church yeah, because it was, it was underground. literally underground. Yeah, it was. Because it was by accident we no, became labeled as underground radio. We used to sneak in there. You see, oh, I, I, did too. I knew how to get into the station, not through the front door, but through the bowels of the church. So we would we would find an open door back there by the church and then wind our way down, and then eventually we'd go in from the other side. And the jocks would always, you know, how did you get in here? How did you do it? You know, and Even they didn't know how we did it, but we would sneak down there to watch the guys. Yeah, and how interesting that this was all going on in the basement of a church. All these guys were, you could smell marijuana through the whole basement there. <laughs> and you, you, you know. would have recording artists come in and knock on the door and just pull off and, and talk live. Well, how about they, that? They'd go live. The first blow to Top yeah. 40 was underground radio and kids now being discovering what they wanted to hear on FM which was a different style of music, you know, AOR, you know, album-oriented artists, right. especially like Monterey Pop. And, of course, the Beatles changed, too, in 67. They were no longer the mop tops. They were, they were getting into more freakier stuff. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, 67 was really the pivotal year that everything really changed. Some people say 66 was the most, being there at the time, I say 67 was really the, the most influential year for radio and, and, and music. And as all these changes were happening, Bill, on the kids were going over to FM, they were listening to more AOR. Yeah. What was happening at KRLA? KLA continued doing their Top 40 format until the fall of 1967 when Bill Slater, who had been the all-night guy, decided he wanted to do something different. He went to the management of KLA and said, let me program a six-hour show, call it Collage, and I'll have the engineer on the, on the other side of the glass just play back-to-back -back music, and it was the heavier stuff. So for six hours a night, Carole deviated from its top 40 format and played a lot of these heavier stuff and a lot of sunshine pop, too. And you just hear a voice come on, you're listening to Collage on Carole, and that's it. And then there were, I call them boutique segments, Odyssey. Odyssey came later. Yeah, later Odyssey on, came in 69. 69, along with a fellow who we know, a good friend of mine, well, Jimmy Rabbit. Well, Jimmy Rabbit replaced the Odyssey show. So what happened is in 67, uh, Carole tried to become hipper by having this collage show. And originally it was just the guy playing records uh, back to back, and then eventually they put it on tape, and uh, and that lasted uh, through uh, early '69. And um, then in early '69 they decided, well, let's uh, before they got Rabbit, the seven to midnight shift, they called Odyssey, as, as Mike remembered, and that's where it was like collage, but it was uh, the same idea, but it was seven to midnight, and that was before they got Rabbit. And then when Rabbit came in, he was playing the progressive stuff, but as a, as a jock. Didn't they also have a almost a progressive Christian station? Heaven is in your mind. That was in 69. In those days, you see, stations had to have, as a condition of their license, they right. had to have some kind of religious programming, okay. newscast. Okay. And that was their workaround. Wow. Yeah, and so what it was was Gary Marshall, who really was a, a Christian man and, and had very strong religious beliefs, they had him program the show. 
But Gary uh, was the production manager of KRLA in 69, and he came up with the idea of playing these religious, you know, songs, not out-and-out out, out religious song, but songs that had sort of a spiritual end to them, and then he would read, uh, I don't want to say, I don't think he read scripture, but I think he read religious poems or poems, inspirational type like poems. Jack Handy. Thoughts for today. Yeah, it, sort it of was, like that. It was pretty eclectic. And stuff. Heaven is in your yeah. mind. They got it from the Heaven traffic your, song or yeah, the, from the Three Dog Night song. song and uh, and we listened to it. Let's talk real quick on the uh, news personalities. Let's talk Lou Irwin. We're, we're in that period. Well, Lou part. Irwin founded the credibility gap. Correct. That was his idea. Uh, and, and Lou uh, has not gotten the credit he deserves because right. he left. And, and and these other guys then did the comedy stuff. But Lou is the founder of it. And then when he left, they kept it going. And the more well-known members of the Credibility Gap, uh, as you said, David L. Lander, Harry Shearer, you know, those guys are more synonymous. But Lou is the one who founded it. Lou is the founder of the Credibility Gap and should get credit for it. But he was a straight newsman. He never did he comedy bits or anything. Yeah, he never yeah. did the comedy. Yeah. Those voices and the comedy bits came from uh, David L. Lander, Harry Shearer in particular, and then, uh, and then Richard Beebe, who was... Uh, who had been a straight newsman, he got involved in, 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 the, in the comedy Richard stuff. Maybe, uh... There were other guys, John Gilliland, uh, or John Land, he called himself then, and uh, Tom Beck was another guy. Tom Beck, you know. and uh, over on the sports side, Danny Baxter. Danny Baxter, the Carolay book, he called <laughs> it. Inside the Carolay book. the book, Baxter. Right? The book. Very energetic, and a lot of people copied their styles as a result of what yeah. Danny Yeah, did. he was the first really sort of personality, uh, uh, aggressive, uh, kind of like a Vic the Brick or Petros mm-hmm. Papadakis, that style. It was a different style of sports casting than they'd had before. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't a Gil Stratton or a... Right. Or a uh, not the shotgun Tom, but yeah. the other Tom Kelly, who was a sportscaster in L.A., or Tom Harmon, but those were straight sportscasters. Right. Baxter was the first one to add a lot of personality to it. Okay. And then, of course, by the Carolee book, he would make predictions. Uh, he would bring that into it, his, his own predictions for races and for mm-hmm. fights and for boxing. And you know, We've painted some broad strokes here in the past few minutes, and we've stuck around 40, 45 years ago of L.A. Top 40. Bill, is it coming back? We're baby boomers. Uh, I don't like the cliche, but we're a baby boomer show. We're a nostalgia show. So many people want to go back to the memories. Is it coming back? Or is this just a flashing, is this a scrapbook that people, oh, I remember that, and they go on with their lives? I would, I would say more of the latter of the two. Okay. I think I don't see any revival of Top 40. No, it's not coming back because, you know, I'm 61 this year. You guys are, you know, obviously over 45. There's a lot of younger people that don't remember KCBQ or KRLA or, or that era or even Top 40 radio. So it doesn't mean anything to them. It's not their era. And I'm not talking about kids. I'm talking about... You know, people in their 30s, a 35-year-old attorney, he doesn't know anything about KCBQ or, or 136 KGB or Boss Radio or anything, but you can't blame them. It's not their era, you know? We're getting older every year, you know? I mean, what's going to happen when when the baby boomer generation dies off? You're not going to have people who, who will remember that period, at least firsthand, you know? Yeah, good point. You know, we're going to take a break here. We're going to wrap up with our good friend Bill Earl, but uh, it's been some great stuff. As usual, we pack a whole lot into a small amount of time, but when we come back, we're going to find out where Bill Earl is today. Be right back. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. 
Here comes the night on KRLA. 13 this week, and the tune deck should move into the top five by the end of the week. KRLA Beatle ticket time, two minutes past two o'clock. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site with Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We have our good guest and friend Bill Earl and his lovely wife here at the hat. But our, our guest Bill Earl does actually keep his hand, or rather his vocal cords, in the top 40, in the radio biz. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I had virtually given up on being a jock back in 1970. I, in college, I did it to 72. But I, I didn't have the fire in the belly to go out and get a first-class license or to, to be a professional radio personality. So I had no idea to ever do jocking again. But in December 2006, a guy named Barry Funkhauser and Timmy Manicheo, two guys who were involved with this Error FM, Internet Radio, called me and said, you want to do jocking? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love it. I said, that'd be fun. I didn't think I ever would do that. And so I, it happened in December 2006. So I was on this Error FM, which was like a, an a, a, it's alternative indie format. I hated the music. I don't even know what I was playing, but I mean, I still got to do my personality thing and all. And then Chris Compton from KFXM FM, uh, which is uh, an oldie station, an actual terrestrial FM up in the, in the Antelope Valley, he heard about me called me up and said, hey, do you want to do a noon to four show every Saturday afternoon? I said, sure. So after the era thing ended, I was there on KFXM uh, in the Antelope Valley from noon to, to four. Then they cut the show down to noon to three. And I stayed there from April of 2007 until uh, I left in July 2008. And then I did a, an Internet thing with a fellow named David Jackson, David Farrell Jackson. He's like the David Leonard of San Francisco, if you ever run into him up there. Well, David Farrell Jackson had a thing called KXOK uh, in Manteca out of a brewery. And so I went up there in August of 2008, and, I, and he said, I want you to make up a name. And so I said, well, I'll call myself Phil Heron. And so I was on there for a short time, for about a month, until he dumped the format because he wasn't getting, I guess he got tired of it, and so he turned it over to somebody else. And But then my, my buddy from PCC, George Junak, uh, and a, a partner of his named Bob Oscar Johnson, came up with a, uh, a channel to revive KXOA in Sacramento. And so uh, Junak uh, asked if I would uh, jock there and, and do the a Midnight to Six show. And it's all voice tracked, of course. I mean, I'm not there live, but, uh, but I'm on from Midnight to Six on 147kxoa.com every night. Great. Yeah, the Bill Earl show. 147kxoa. Yeah. We'll put a link, uh, Mike, We will link website. that. Oh, it's all voice track. It sounds very good. It sounds like I'm live. Oh, great. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and listen to myself. Gee, I sound pretty good. You know, <laughs> I read liners. All I do is I read liners that they put in front of me. I have, there's no impromptu. There's no uh, unscripted jocking. And, Bill, you have an extensive website. Talk to us about your website. The site is called Classic uh, DJ Radio Scrapbook. The uh, URL is http colon slash slash classic DJ radio scrapbook dot blogspot dot com. And you can find the book I wrote, Dreamhouse, the 144 page history of Carolet. You'll see pictures of KCBQ. The only trouble is the site maxed out in 2009. And then when it maxed out, I couldn't put anything else there. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't even change what's there. I mean, you know, so, so what I did was I uh, got onto Facebook. And uh, if you go to my, my name on Facebook, Bill Earl, you, you can, and you go to my photo section, you'll see all the stuff that would have gone on the blog site, 
but the blog site's maxed out, so a lot of the, the edX is sort of on Facebook. Okay, so we can visit your website, and we can visit your yeah, page on Facebook, and there's I've a lot of cool stuff there. There's a lot of neat stuff there, a lot there of pictures. There is, yeah, yeah, a lot of neat uh, stuff. The book I wrote, and then a play I wrote in high school, and then the original term paper on Carolee that I wrote in 1969. I, I was able to find that, and uh, probably in a trunk in my parents' garage or something, and, and I put that on the site. Great. Yeah, it's a real treasure trove of Yeah, it's a lot of cool stuff. And San Diego stuff, too. There's a lot of KCBQ stuff, because my family, uh, my mom's uh, brother and her parents lived in Rancho Santa Fe in San Diego, okay. so... Uh, so I knew a lot about KCBQ from visiting there. I never lived in San Diego, per se. We were there, like, maybe every 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 six weeks we'd go down. So, uh, you know, I can't be like David Leonard, because Leonard lived it day in and day out. Right. I do know quite a bit of, of San Diego radio from simply being there all those years. Bill, I'd sure like to thank you sure. for your time. And we're going to come back and see you again, because there's a lot more about Top 40 Radio that our listeners like to hear and that we want to know about. We didn't even touch on some of the good stuff as far as the KRLA years. We're going to sign off now with yet another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. It's been our special honor to have a very good guest and good friend, Bill Earl. We're going to have him back on the show. Sure, anytime. We're going to post his links. And friend Bill on Facebook, you won't find a more responsive friend. On Facebook. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you well, for the kind words. Well, thank you for everything, and thank you for all you do for the memories and the industry, Bill. And until next time, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And uh, this is Bill Earl, uh, somewhere out there. <laughs> That's another show. <laughs> Thanks again, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Take thank care, you. folks.